0: Richard Elliott Friedman is the Ann and Jay Professor of Jewish Studies at the University of Georgia. He's the author of The Best Selling, Who Wrote the Bible, He's Just Published, The Exodus, How It Happened and Why It Matters.
1: And uh, there are in fact 52 references in, in the five books of Moses to treating aliens the same as native-born Israelites, now, now that's unheard of, that's, that's amazing. That experience of having been the outsiders in Egypt. Uh, That really hurt, and they made sure that they weren't going to be like that in Israel.
0: I also speak with Wayne Potter and Pam Brown. Wayne is the creator of the radio show Keeping Current with a K. They finished a long tour through Israel-Palestine.
2: We just came off two weeks of traveling all through um, Israel, from the north to the south, and the east to the west.
0: They share their observations. It's time for Progressive Spirit. Be right back you're listening to the podcast version of progressive spirit if you enjoy the show please go to itunes stitcher google play podomatic TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen and give progressive spirit five stars won't you contact me through progressivespirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show and be sure to share this podcast on your social media follow on facebook and twitter the website again is progressivespirit.net for the Pacifica Radio Network, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shock. Many of us have grown up watching the Ten Commandments on television. Each year, we would watch Charlton Heston kill an Egyptian rescue Midianite damsels, confront the Pharaoh with amazing miracles, and then lead the Hebrews out of slavery in Egypt and through the Red Sea by splitting it in two. Is the whole thing a fiction? Did the Exodus even happen? Premier biblical scholar Richard Elliott Friedman makes the case for the Exodus as an event in history, but not as we read it exactly he's the author of the exodus how it happened and why it matters
1: look it was very nice of of, of uh, the united states to get involved in all these arguments about aliens just when i was writing my book i mean i i, <laughs> I had all this <laughs> planned and was lecturing on it before the all the last elections and all that sort of thing but uh they, they just kind of showed it just underscored how important all of this continues to be
0: Plus, I speak with the creator of the radio show Keeping Current, Wayne Potter and Pam Brown. They share their observations of Israel-Palestine from a tourist's perspective.
2: The thing about being with the Palestinians is they're as fervent and as passionate as any Israeli person we met. So here you have two passionate sides of people. Of every issue.
0: Richard Elliott Friedman is the Ann and J. Davis Professor of Jewish Studies at the University of Georgia. He's the author of several books, including The Disappearance of God, The Hidden Book in the Bible, and the best selling Who Wrote the Bible. He was a consultant for the DreamWorks film, The Prince of Egypt. His latest book and the subject of our discussion today is The Exodus How It Happened and Why It Matters. Welcome, Dr. Friedman, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you. Maybe we can start with uh, the relationship, if you don't mind, between archaeology and biblical studies. I, can you can you talk a little bit about that relationship between archaeology and and uh, Hebrew scripture studies?
1: Yeah, sure. I, I come out of the American School of Biblical and Archaeological Scholarship. That all started with William Foswell Albright at, at Johns Hopkins, and in the you know the forties and fifties, early sixties, he graduated a, a, this. Amazing range of brilliant scholars who went out and became the leading faculty around the country. And, and it was a, so it's called the Albright School. I count as an Albright grandchild because every one of my teachers did their PhDs under Albright. When I, when I was at Harvard, I mean, we had, four, we had Professor Cross, Professor Wright, uh, Professor Moran, Professor Lambden, all were students of Albright. And wherever you went, that's what you saw. And, and Albright's uh, ideal was that you do both archaeology and text. Uh, My first teacher was was G.E. Wright, who who was the leading American biblical archaeologist uh, in the years I studied with him. And and, uh, at the same time, he was the leading biblical Old Testament theologian. And a lot of people thought, whoa, what? (laughs) But that didn't bother him. He could do both. And, and, And so I was just naturally among those who grew up respecting both and, and so, your question is you know at the, at, in the present state of 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 the field right there are a lot of archaeologists who are who are really well trained archaeologists. I get to say some of my best friends are archaeologists i 'm half an archaeologist myself and and, and uh, but they aren 't necessarily trained in Bible and text and how to do biblical history, how to read a text, and have an idea of what to do with it and on the other hand, you're a lot of my colleagues who are trained in Bible but they 've never been on a dig and and don 't keep up with all of the archaeology. But, and it's understandable. I mean, we live in an age of specialization. I mean, in medical doctors, you know, who, who do just left knee, not right knee. I mean, that's the way things are now. And uh, But the only way to get at this stuff, especially the exodus, is to do both. And so, yeah, it's taken us, you know, a couple hundred years. But finally, in the last two years, I'd say especially, or three, uh, those those two fields have come together so that Now, it doesn't have to be a fight, what the archaeologists say versus what the Bible scholars say. We can can reconcile it all, and I think we've come to an answer.
0: So what do we know, then, uh, uh, regarding the Exodus story itself? What what I read from your book is that uh, there's a sense in which there were people who did some kind of Exodus. It wasn't two million people, and it wasn't the whole bunch. Uh, It was a particular uh, uh, group, uh, the Levites. Can you talk about those a little bit?
1: Yeah. The the main arguments that people have made against the exodus are are not evidence against the exodus, that they can't find any evidence. So they say, well, that must not have happened. I mean, from the biblical story, that says it was 603,550 adult males. If you throw in the women and the kids, you're looking at about 2 million people, and they're supposed to be in the wilderness there for 40 years. So archaeologists say, well, if we can't find a darn thing, um and then, how could there have been two million people there for forty years and uh that's true and not true. I mean, they say, well, we've combed the Sinai, that's not true. Nobody has combed the Sinai. nobody has excavated the whole Sinai that's not possible uh i one an Israeli colleague of is an archaeologist just laughed when he heard that he said it was five jeeps you know, it it was and he meant that it it was a survey not nobody excavated the whole thing uh And and also you say, well, what do they expect to find, you know, uh, uh, an inscribed piece of petrified wood saying uh, Moses loved Zipporah carved in it? I mean, what what, what do they think they're going to get? But even if I get rid of the skepticism and all, I can still say, okay, probably something should have turned up. That's only questioning whether there were millions of people. It's not a question of whether an exodus happened. All of us in the field agreed that there were people from the region that is today uh, Israel, what would you call it, Levantines, uh, Asiatics, Western Semites. Um, the Egyptians themselves referred to them as Asiatics. There are people from that region who were going, coming and going down to Egypt all the time. I mean, you could drive it in a day, you know. I mean, they didn't have cars, but they could they could walk it in, you know, a week. Uh, it, 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 and people went, and were everything from lower classes of Egypt, like slaves, and the the uh, people called the Shasu or the Apiru or the Habiru, all the way up to the Hyksos, who were a dynasty of pharaohs. And um, they were coming, going all the time, just not in one giant exodus, but in you know many little you know exoditos, and and um, Back in my in 1987, in in my better-known book, uh, uh, until now, uh, uh, who wrote the Bible? I said, "Well, maybe it was the Levites," but that was in 1987. I was saying, "Well, maybe," but uh, now I'm willing to put a you know a name on it and say one of those many groups that were coming and going out of Egypt was apparently the part of Israel known as Levites. They're the uh, authors of, of much of the Bible. They're the priesthood of ancient. Israel, and uh, when you look at the Levites in, in the Bible, the only people in ancient Israel, either biblically or in the inscriptions, uh, who have Egyptian names are Levites. Now, why would that be? I mean, you know, our names reveal stuff about us. You know, my name is Friedman. That tells you that, that, that my roots in all likelihood are a are, are, are Jew from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, if my name were Shaughnessy, chances are that would tell you I'm not a Jew from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, names reveal a lot, and we in North America especially get that. And so when only the Levites have Egyptian names and the rest of the Israelites don't, that's something to take note of. So then in the book, I just started piling on what other evidence I could find, and, and not just to make a high pile, but to see where the evidence intersects with each other. And you, you find, you know, in, in 10 or 11 different ways, including genetic evidence, uh, archaeological evidence, textual evidence, there's this high likelihood that uh, most of Israel were just in Israel the whole time. They didn't come from anywhere. They were just living there. And, uh, but the Levites were a group that came separately out of Egypt. They were Asiatic or Semitic or Levantine, but, but they were a particular group of people, they weren't a tribe, they, did, they weren't a family. That's why genetically they have nothing in common with each other, their descendants today, people who are trace their descent to ancient Levites. No matter where they live in the world, they, they have nothing genetically in common with each other or with the rest of the Jews. Uh, so that fits with the scenario. That doesn't prove it's true, that fits with the scenario that the the levites were the ones who experienced uh, egypt and then they showed up in israel and became the priests
0: and so they showed up uh and 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 connected then again with the people who were in israel who eventually became known as israelites
1: yeah i think israel and were there and were known as israelites already and the levites joined them and then in the story become adopted and regarded as another tribe of israel when the evidence genetically and textually is not that they were originally a tribe they were the ones who were down in egypt and then they they came up and they somewhere on the way they uh developed the worship of the god yahweh the two oldest references to the name yahweh older than the bible are both come from egypt and both refer to people in the region of midian and that's interesting because you know moses in this story, is married to a Midianite and his father-in-law is a Midianite priest. And why would anybody make that up? <laughs> why would anybody in Israel want to make up that Moses' father-in-law is a Midianite priest? So it has the ring of historical truth and it fits with all of this, that either in Egypt or in Midian, this community developed the religion of this god Yahweh, whereas meanwhile back in Israel, they were worshipping the god El. And when the levite egyptian group showed up and joined up with the other israelites Um, well they all had choices right they could have said okay we're just going to worship el not yahweh uh... choice two we're just going to worship yahweh not el choice three okay we'll worship yahweh and el choice four yahweh is el's father choice five el is yahweh's father they had you know choices both monotheistic and polytheistic but the choice they made was none of those they said Yahweh and El are the same God, that there's only that one God, which suggests that the monotheistic impulse is there very early in Israel's history, much earlier than almost any of my colleagues are willing to admit.
0: Well, that's what you talk about. I, I remember in the seminary and you know, just thinking that monotheism came after the exile, and, and you write about that in your book, and you're saying, no, it's earlier than that. When did uh, Yahweh and El become one
1: well, it would have to have been at the very early stage of the arrival of the, arrival of the, uh, the Levites in Israel. Otherwise, uh, we would have all kinds of texts about both Yahweh and El, but we don't have those. What we do is we have very famous texts about Yahweh first revealing his name to Moses and saying, your, your ancestors only knew me as El, but I'm telling you now what my real name is. It's Yahweh. I mean, it's in Exodus 6.3. It's also a big burning bush story in Exodus 3:14. In both of those situations, by two different authors, both of whom are Levite authors, God's name was not known to the Israelites until the Egyptian group showed up until the time of Moses, and then God reveals it to Moses and then they know. Now that certainly sounds like a story that somebody is trying to reconcile the worship of El and the worship of Yahweh, worship of Yahweh and saying, no, they're both the same God. And if that's so, that had to have happened early in Israel's history, way before the Babylonian exile. I mean, you are, I know I, you're knowledgeable of this stuff. You know, almost everything gets attributed to after the Babylonian exile. Right. The, the, the Jew, but in this model, the Jews were in their country for like 600 years, 700 years, and didn't do a thing. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Created nothing of particular interest, and then they get they get thrown out of their country. They're in Babylon and Exile. Suddenly, they're writing most of the Bible. They're inventing monotheism. They're observing the Sabbath. Uh, they're inventing history writing. They're uh, 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 everything they do becomes a, a product of exile. I, I, I find that very questionable model
0: yeah you're saying it had happened quite a bit earlier and, and in fact and all and all the way through so uh and what I found fascinating in in terms of that is how the plural is used um uh by God using the plural so to speak so and you explain that for a little bit because at the very beginning uh for example Genesis one you have both the p writer and um the the uh, is it the the J writer or which which whatever ones yeah. they have? They use the plural at first, but then they both switched to understanding their each each individual god, Elohim and Yahweh, in in the singular. And uh, you're saying that some this kind of is an evidence a little bit how how the gods were believed to have died. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, now you, you realize I'm, I'm bouncing all around the Bible here in minutes, we are. It's like a you know a, a speedy journey through the United States, you know, <laughs> and you know we've out seven of the states. Will get the we'll get
0: we, we can go but, back but, and but, pick it up too.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a famous thing in Psalm eighty-two where uh, God, the highest God, Hebrew El uh, uh, who is Yahweh, um, condemns the, all the other gods who are his children, gods and goddesses, to death for not doing a good job of being God. And uh, a lot of people know of that, Psalm 82, the myth of the death of the gods. We understand that. But the interesting thing is is that there and in the last Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, it says that this happens uh, around the time that God distributes all the nations and their gods. Meaning like he says, Zeus, okay, you get Greece. Marduk, you get Babylon. Ra, you get Egypt and, and so on. That each one gets their gods. Now, at the same time that you have that situation, that you have a series of texts in the Bible that seem to recognize that there used to be gods, but now they're all gone. They died. Then on top of that, you have this other famous problem of the Bible that people cite all the time. They say, well, why is it that God speaks in the plural? It must be that ancient Israel was polytheistic, not monotheistic. But what they never tell you is the famous cases in creation story you said in Genesis 1, God says, let us create humans in our image. And in the Garden of Eden story, God says, after they've eaten from the tree, uh, the human has become like one of us. And then at the Tower of Babel, uh, when uh, God is going to scatter all the humans around the earth, he, he says, let us go down and confuse their languages there. But what they don't tell you about that is the three examples I just gave you are the only three examples in the Bible. Yeah. There's there's one questionable one in Isaiah that I don't think is a plural, but those three, the clear, obvious cases of where God speaks in the plural, are only at the beginning, and then he never does it again. And the interesting thing is the place where it stops, the last one, is at the Tower of Babel. Well, that's the story of where God creates all the different nations. And that's the same thing that happened in Psalm 82, and in in the Song of Moses about the the end of the gods. So uh, it it solves the classic old question of why God speaks in the plurals because At the beginning, there are other gods to talk to, but later there are not. And And, it uh, it also fits with this early merger of El and Yahweh and and the worship of one God.
0: And so that's how they explained uh, the idea of now we have one God, and in fact, perhaps there were, our ancestors might have had more than one, but now there are one, and the reason is, is because these gods just didn't make the cut.
1: Right, because, look, even I, I, I was saying, yeah, I think monotheistic impulse was there right at the beginning. But uh, I don't claim that everybody was monotheistic right at the beginning. We all know that it took centuries for it to catch on. People didn't just say, oh, okay, we'll just throw out the religion we've had for thousands of years and we'll start believing in one God. I mean, it, it, it took time, centuries, and prophets arguing and priests fighting and, 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 and so on. But, but uh, whatever generation it was that finally you could say, no, now the majority of the Jews have bought into monotheism. And they, they're really teaching their kids in Sunday school and all, Saturday school, that there's only one God. And the kids are looking around and going, but but Mommy, Grandma believed in lots of gods. Was Grandma bad? Well, what are you supposed to do with that if you're a parent? <laughs> so you, 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 th- th- there's this myth of the death. I got to say, no, honey, hey, Grandma wasn't good. There were the gods, but the gods were bad. And they all died and they're gone now, and now there's only the one God. So whether you think that was just a myth they made up or a real belief that they believed, whatever it was, they had to deal with the fact that they knew darn well that we used to believe in a lot of gods and we don't anymore.
0: My guest is uh, Dr. Richard Friedman. Uh, he's the author of The Exodus, How It Happened and Why It Matters. Let's go back to The Exodus again. And uh, you were talking about The Exodus being the Levites. Moses is an Egyptian name. And and all of the Levites have Egyptian names, so they are the this one. We would later they would be called a tribe, but individually they they were their own people, Levites. What were were they escaping Exodus? Is there any way to know what they were leaving, or are they just migrating, or what, what were they enslaved? Is there any way to historically know that?
1: Well, in several of their texts, they refer to slavery. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that far more. Then referring to the slavery, they refer to the departure, the exodus. If I mentioned somewhere in the book, I don't remember the exact number, but in all the books of the prophets, there's something like 45 references uh, to the Egyptian experience, and and almost all of them are to the exodus, and there's only like three or four that refer to the slavery. And uh, in the story itself, there's far more references to the Exodus than to the slavery. If you look in the 150 Psalms, there are seven or eight that refer to the Exodus. There are none that refer to the slavery. So, yes, there may have been slavery involved, um, but to them it was the—I think—more the I think more the, uh, the liberation, uh, the freedom, the coming home, the and and the, and the establishment of the worship of their God that were. The most important. It's not that slavery doesn't matter. Slavery matters, but but what they were interested in was that feeling of being aliens there. And uh, so you know that where the, the last chapter of this book goes is is about that. That that there are, there are all these references in the Hebrew Bible that you have to treat aliens the same as citizens. An obvious concern in the United States at present. Uh, uh, what's the status of an alien? And and and. And they and first occurrence the word Torah in the Torah is you will shall you shall have one Torah for the citizen and for the alien that's Exodus twelve, and and uh, there are in fact fifty two references in in the five books of Moses to treating aliens the same as native born Israelites now, now that's unheard of that's that's amazing and the amazing thing even more is it only occurs in the Levite authors of the Bible not in the non-Levite authors. Which certainly makes it look like that experience of having been the outsiders in Egypt uh, that really hurt, and they made sure that they weren't going to be like that in Israel. And I can tell you, it's, it's only in Israel. In all the ancient Near Eastern law codes, there are many laws that say you, you should protect the weak, you, you uh, widows, orphans, and so on. But but nobody else has in their law codes that you have to treat foreigners, aliens. The, the same as as your own citizens under the law. I mean, if, and if, that's if the, the same. On vacation, and they, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: Well, I was just that you're. Uh, I highlight what you just said. Uh, treat them the same, not with two different categories of people.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like and... it's it's in, in American law too. If a Frenchman or Canadian uh, comes to to Georgia and gets legal trouble, civil or criminal, I mean, they have the same protections that I do. I mean, you, you, we we do have too. We uh, and that was, but that started with these uh, Levites in
0: the Bible. Let's start with the Levites in the Bible. That, that's, that's where we're going. Because So the experience in Egypt uh, would be uh, that the Levites experienced some kind of alienation, some kind of second-class status uh, as people, whether they were enslaved in some way or whatever it was, they were not treated equally, so they depart. They go to this new place and uh, meet up with the, with the Israelites and say a foundation of, of who we are is that we will treat aliens uh, sojourners people outside of our land as, as as equal partners or at least equal judgment yeah okay. and that's and that uh, ethical um, change is really due to the historicity of the exodus and, and that's one of the reasons why understanding the history of of, of Exodus is important, to, to, to recognize that that development came out of it, not only monotheism, but also this uh, development to uh, uh, treat the alien with respect and justice.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's why this is important to me. I, mean, look, I, I do work as a historian, but I am not, my interest is not just antiquarian. Whether the Exodus happened or not, yes, that matters to me a lot. But it also, what's most important, is what, what difference did it make? And, and what we got out of it. A lot of the people who say that the Exodus didn't happen they're still their their backup position is. But okay, the important thing that really matters is the lessons that we learn, the moral lessons, religious lessons, whether it happened or not. And I used to use that explanation myself, but then I go to myself, who are we kidding? I mean, I, I'm living in Georgia here. Try telling people in Georgia that it doesn't matter if the Civil War happened. It's just the lessons we learned from it. You know, I mean, of course we care about history. It just doesn't seem as obvious with the Exodus because it's 3,000 years earlier than the Civil War. But, but it, 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 things happen in history, and they make a difference ever after. If that group hadn't left Egypt and merged their god with the, the god in Israel into one, uh, the whole history of Judaism and Christianity, and I suppose Islam as well, uh, would be different uh, I don't know how it would be different. We might have arrived at monotheism anyway. All I know is that it did happen this way. And the same about how we treat aliens and the, uh, saying, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. That that verse comes in, in Leviticus 19, which, again, is is a Levitical text. That, that uh, yeah, maybe we all would have learned to love our neighbor as ourselves anyway. But all I know is it didn't just happen in some anyway kind of way. It happened as a result of this. So yeah the exodus it it matters whether it happened or not and what came out of it
0: What do you make of um there's a fascinating talk in, in talking about the various uh, plagues that we have uh it, is there anything historically to that or or how might these stories have developed turning the waters into blood and the frogs and, and as well as the angel of death
1: um Look, there's no evidence on any of the the plagues that they happened, and uh, it's not crucial to the story, but it's, it's there. Uh, that angel of death thing, you know, isn't actually in the Bible. It's a later Jewish midrash to get around the fact that the Bible says it was God who 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 killed the firstborn of Egypt, and yeah, that was hard for people to live with, you know. So, um, uh, but, but you know, water turning to blood is in an, another ancient Egyptian text um inanimate objects turning into reptiles was an ancient egyptian text some of those things have some reflexes we know but but uh the plague part of the story there's just no evidence one way or the other i mean people say well the the sun going out for the ninth plague was just an eclipse and you go, well that's a very strange eclipse as it it says in the text three days if an eclipse really happened for three days you'd have to check with you know, a cosmologist to tell us what would happen, I assume we'd all cease to exist or something. But <laughs> uh, but uh uh what you wrote... all they know is that they got out. Yeah well what you uh, wrote in... embellish the story of plagues.
0: Yeah. Yeah well what you wrote in there was about the, like the death like the sun was really the death of the sun god. It, it's it's a way of, of the of the mythology in a sense, right? Of writing the deaths of these various gods, kind of objectifying, you know uh the sun god to you know a sun
1: yeah well i think if if it's right that there was this ancient myth in in ancient israel of the death of the gods then it would appear yes that several of the stories of the plagues as stories reflect the elimination of the gods and it's exactly what you said that the the culminating plague is the death of the sun god uh that marked the fact that the sun goes out for three days and and uh uh, you know, the sun in almost all periods is the chief god in in Egypt, so that would make perfect sense. And the others, you know, the the river and the waters is, is a crucial deity in, in Egypt. And and the first plague is is turning the water to blood. That certainly sounds like the death of the god. And and we know that the Egyptian religion was what the most death obsessed religion of all time. Uh, With mummies and pyramids and doctrines about the afterlife and the Book of the Dead and and all that sort of thing. And at the 10th plague, uh, God takes control of death. Like, I mean, a death that only occurs to firstborn human and animals is not your average death. So it's uh, indicating there's some power that's greater than uh, death.
0: I'm John Schuck. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm speaking with Richard Elliott Friedman. He's the author of The Exodus, How It Happened, and Why It Matters. I continue my conversation with Dr. Friedman after the break, and later in the show, I speak with Wayne Potter and Pam Brown as they share their observations from a recent tour to Israel-Palestine. Stay with us. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click Donate. I'm speaking with Dr. Richard Elliott Friedman. He's the author of the bestseller, Who Wrote the Bible? And we're discussing his latest book, The Exodus, How It Happened and Why It Matters. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Chuck. I, I, I want to also talk a little bit more about the Levites. I, I, re, I didn't realize just how major they are. I mean, they are in uh, all the sources of E, Uh, the Elohist, and the Deuteronomist, D, as well as the priestly writer, P. So to what level throughout, um, as we move from E to D to P or whatever, uh, that the Levites still have their identity as Levites?
1: Well, once they came and didn't get territory like all the tribes of Israel, um, you know, they got this status as the the priests and, and, and teachers of the people, and they get 10 percent of the produce of the land in return for that, and a few cities, Hebron and some other cities. So they become the heads of the religion. I mean, in, until the first kings of Israel, they're the head of the country. Um, and in most periods, I would say uh, the leadership of Israel is is priestly as much as as uh, monarchic. Uh, it was very powerful that the high priest wears a a, uh, a like a crown, like a king, and uh, and, well, like, as in any country, there's always a dynamic between the, the political leaders and the religious leaders. And uh, in this case, they were powerful. And you re- when you read the story in the books of Kings and the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, you often see antagonism between the, the kings and the priests. And that's for all the reasons you'd expect politically, that there was a great deal at stake. So these Levites had a lot of power. Uh, today, they don't anymore. But... Um,
0: Basically, they've
1: been replaced by rabbis. You know, it's not because of anything biblical.
0: But they they represented uh, an elite, uh, an elite class, uh, perhaps a a literate class of people, even perhaps when they were in Egypt and and needing to depart, that they they would be naturally the the leaders wherever they went.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think a little bit of both, actually, when they get to Israel, because... Right, in some ways, right. The ones who are in the Jerusalem establishment, and the priests at the temple and all that, yeah, they're they're elite. They're powerful and perhaps wealthy. The ones in Hebron, likewise. But then also the book of Deuteronomy also tells you that you have to uh, take care of the Levite the same as you take care of widows and orphans, which would imply there are a lot of Levites who are landless and incomeless as well. So, uh, but, but I mean, you have the same thing in the clergy today, whether it's Catholic, Protestant, or Jewish. I mean, there are wealthy ones and poor ones. There are influential, powerful ones and, and others who are more dependent. And, and Life in the clergy.
0: Yeah, right. And, of course, one of their primary roles is to tell the story, right? To tell the story in a way that, uh, well, they want to tell it.
1: There are several places, you know, in the text where it says, when your child will ask you, what is the meaning of this? You shall say to him, well, we were as slaves to Pharaohs in Egypt, and we were brought out. So, yeah, they make a very specific point four times in the text. You're supposed to tell the story.
0: I want to talk also about Yahweh's wife. Um, I found that fascinating in your book that uh, Asherah is not necessarily a a, a proper name, but uh, the name for a goddess. And and the, and you mentioned in the story of the prophets of uh, of Baal that there was also the prophets of uh, the goddess. And uh, but but um, Elijah and his crew didn't slay them, but they but you said that the Yahweh just kind of uh, uh, took that aspect, Asherah the goddess, as as his own. Uh, into his own uh, what? His own house.
1: Well yeah, that you know that Psalm eighty two where God condemns the gods to death. It's the gods and goddesses who are his children, but there's also a goddess who's his spouse, and he doesn't condemn her to death. And that parallel yes yeah, in that, that uh Elijah story that you mentioned, the, the famous story of Elijah and the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel, when when, when Yahweh wins the duel with Baal as it were, um they massacre these four hundred priests of Baal, but they don't massacre the 400 priests of the Asherah that were, that were right there, too. And, yeah, it was my, my great colleague of blessed Norman David Noel Friedman, who said, yeah, well, the winner gets the girl. And, and it was a duel between Yahweh and Baal, and the one who wins is going to be the, the god of the country and also is the one who gets the goddess. And it was centuries later that the Jews finally gave that up uh, and and so now people aren't right. I mean, you, you, you said we're not even clear on whether Asherah is the name of the goddess or Asherah is just the word for a goddess. Uh, the evidence now is it's it's the latter. Asherah wasn't a particular goddess; it's any goddesses in Asherah. And and but it took a long time uh, to give that up. And and then you know I mean the feminine has to be a part of religion as well. So the Jews developed the concept of the Shekhinah later and. And Catholics developed the kind of uh, Mariology around the same time, and uh, uh, there was in, their, in the Book of Hosea, Israel itself is regarded as the wife of Yahweh, metaphorically. Um, but yeah, originally it wasn't no metaphor. They 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 thought that God had a wife. There is a good a, a good popular treatment, very readable, is Did God Have a Wife? And uh, it's a book by William Deaver, Dever. D-E-V-E-R. William, Bill Dever is, is, you know, just about one of the very best archaeologists ever of biblical archaeology, and he deals with all of this uh, material.
0: Yeah, you know, it, along those lines, uh, there certainly has been uh, a feminine uh, aspect of the deity, even within the Hebrew Scriptures. I think of um, what what the wisdom. Um, is there a relationship, perhaps, between goddess asherah and and wisdom of perhaps ecclesiasticus or, or or even within uh proverbs that's a different question altogether it, i know that is what your that, book is but
1: yeah it's not my thing i i am my guess is that most of that connection developed post-biblically or or sometime after they'd given up completely on the asherah but that's really not my own research and and uh here, watch very carefully. You hear a uh, scholar say, I don't know. <laughs> all right. all right. I pray, you have to practice in front of a mirror to get it, saying <laughs> it when you're a scholar. But.
0: Richard Friedman, uh, my guest, he's the author of The Exodus, How It Happened and Why It Matters. We went all over the place. I, I, I led you to this, to that, to the other, to the other. Can you summarize for us um, uh, the, the, the impact of, of your book and, and, uh, and why The Exodus Matters?
1: Well, for, for the full evidence that it happened and that it involved uh, the Levites and all, right? I mean, I hate authors who so always say, well, read my book. But in this case, I mean, you really do have to read it all and see all right. the evidence. It, people, you know, each person has to see if they find the evidence compelling or not. I, I think it's compelling. And, um, but yeah, the most important is the, the why it matters part. Um, uh, I think the last sentence of the book, I think, was the exodus happened. It made a difference. It still makes a difference. uh, You and I wouldn't be having this conversation. We might still exist and we might be having a conversation, but it wouldn't be this one if that hadn't happened. And it's just grand that I think that it came together in these years after years of saying, well, we call the sign, I wouldn't find anything, so I guess it didn't happen. I'm I'm so tired of hearing that, and it just wasn't true. We had real evidence now. It's something really important happened in history that still makes a difference.
0: And 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 part of that happening is that it developed into monotheism, which obviously influenced the whole world, as as well as uh, what you'd call an ethical monotheism. That aspect of uh, of uh, treating one's neighbor as oneself, particularly the the one who is the alien.
1: Yeah, I used to hate it. Uh, you know, people who I hated the term ethical monotheism. I hate when people used it. Because it made it sound like you're saying, well, people, monotheists are more moral or more ethical than than pagans or polytheists or atheists or agnostics. And, and I don't feel that way at all. Uh, but it, all I wanted to establish that historically, the birth of monotheism and the birth of the concept of treating everyone, including aliens, equally, um, were born around the same time. So if, if that's what's meant by ethical monotheism, then okay. But... Uh, but otherwise not, uh, and and also the, the, I, this my book isn't some sort of argument for monotheism either. Uh, that's not my game. I'm not in, in, in Georgia. We say I don't have a dog in the hunt. You know, I, not, my interest is is just uh, recognizing that monotheism really became important and played this crucial role in human history. And I'm not, you can be an atheist or an agnostic or a Martian and, and just recognize that that it, it played this important role, even if you yourself you know don't. Don't subscribe to it, so it's worth knowing the human history of of how that all developed
0: and of course uh, me I'm kind of interested in what'll preach and uh, certainly the idea of of this aspect of uh, I, I I hadn't known that before I read your book, and you just said it again uh, about the fifty two references um, in in the scriptures to uh Taking care of of the alien, how that really was a central aspect of this of this exodus or departure event, that it just stuck in their mind as Levites, and and how central and critical that is, particularly as we deal with whatever we deal with today, um, because certainly uh, perhaps similar things happen. You have times in which immigrations and Paula poly- and people have to move from one place to another, and how we treat one another within the land uh, certainly is a is a heritage that we've uh, developed from this Hebrew tradition and. and and one that, well, I guess in my opinion, one that uh, certainly one that we want to emphasize and uh, continue to talk about.
1: Yeah. Look, it was very nice of of, of, uh, the United States to get involved in all these arguments about aliens just when I was writing my book. I mean, I I had all this planned and was lecturing on it before all the last elections and all that sort of thing. But uh, they they just kind of showed, it just underscored how important all of this continues to be.
0: Richard Friedman, thank you so much uh, for your time. Thanks for being with me today. Richard Friedman, author of The Exodus, How It Happened and Why It Matters. Thanks for being with me.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It was a good discussion. I appreciate it very much.
0: Wayne Potter and Pam Brown are seasoned travelers. They recently took a Road Scholars tour—that's R-O-A-D Scholars—to Israel-Palestine. They recorded some interviews for Wayne's program, Keeping Current. I talked to them while they were in Tel Aviv, and they shared with me a little bit of what they saw and heard. Welcome, Wayne and Pam, to Progressive Spirit. It's a pleasure to be on with you, John.
2: Thank
0: you. So, t- uh, t- tell me, did you get some? Uh, did you get some interviews?
1: Oh, you bet I did. I, I mean, actually, I didn't interview people directly, but I had ample opportunity where people spoke uh, for up to an hour uh, and uh, provided us with a considerable variety of stories, during which time there were questions and answers from people within the audience. So it was sort of an interactive setting rather than a direct one-on-one interview.
2: But I did a direct one-on-one interview. Oh,
1: yes, you did.
0: Who, who did you interview, Pam?
2: Originally, we had met a woman, Hannah Pike, and Hannah Pike is a Holocaust survivor. And she actually grew up with Anne Frank, and Anne Frank and she went to kindergarten together. So Hannah knew the whole family. And then after the war, well, actually, during the war, Hannah tried to get some food to um, Anne, Anne because she knew she was quite ill. And she tried three times to get the food over, and um, it was very sad because she only got the food over one time, and then Anne passed away. And after the war, um, her, name, her name and her sister's name were listed in um, Amsterdam, and Mr. Frank found them and took care of them, and um, they made their way through life together until he passed away. Then uh, when Wayne and I were just in a little town south of Haifa, um, a woman and her husband were having lunch in the same cafe as we were, and they stopped us to ask us um, what we were doing there, and we told them what we were doing, touring Israel, and and this woman said, I love Israel, and she just really was quite enthusiastic about everything in Israel. And I said, so how come you love Israel so much? And she said, I love Israel so much because I am a child of a Holocaust survivor. And I, it really, it brought tears to my eyes because there she was. She moved specifically back to Israel for her to honor her family. And she'd raised four children in Israel. And she, she grew up in Philadelphia, went to American universities and moved back here.
0: Did you have uh, any time there to uh, speak with Palestinians?
2: We went to Bethlehem twice. It was sort of an amazing thing. The thing about being with the Palestinians is they're as fervent and as passionate as any Israeli person we met. So here you have two passionate sides of, of every issue. The Palestinian side, fervent, passionate israeli side fervent passionate and that is what we encountered on um most of our trips
1: we had to that we arranged to a friend of ours that was traveling with us on road scholar it was called green the
2: green olives the
1: green olives and it was we would take a, a basically a bus to the wall uh, and then we had a transfer to uh, a Palestinian vehicle, which is only mm-hmm. licensed to be in Palestine. And we had a tour guide that was, uh, I would say, a, a fervent Palestinian.
2: We so uh, took us up to Ramallah. Ramallah,
1: so which is a very flourishing uh, city. And we had a chance to walk along portions of the wall that's been erected by Israel to separate. Palestinians on Palestinian the Israeli side, where there are, are extreme amounts of, of uh, uh, I don't want to call it graffiti, because there's there's dramatic pieces of art there that sort of propound the view of the Palestinians. We took repeated pictures of that area. We had a chance to meet with some young children, some of which said within the last six months, they'd been hit by rubber bullets shot by some of the Israeli soldiers through one of the gates. Uh, we had, uh, uh, walked, uh, of course, with our guide who repeatedly told us that the Israelis control the water supply to all the Palestinian areas and, uh, they don't produce or provide them with, uh, uh, much water supply and they are quick to turn it off. If the, that is the Israelis are quick to turn it off. So you see, uh, on the Palestinian side, many uh, black water containers uh, on top of the buildings because they have to buy water and have it set aside so that when there are these breaks in the flow of water to their residences, they still have some water supply. So they're very bitter about that because they don't have regular access. Uh, also, they have uh, limited access to roads. Uh, throughout the, the West Bank, we went on a road that was created with money from the United States government with millions of dollars, but it takes them almost 40 to 50 minutes to travel that road to get back into Jerusalem because they can't use the main gates uh, to get uh, between uh, Bethlehem and Jerusalem, which may be a 15-minute ride on roads If you have an Israeli license plate, you can go through there. If you have a Palestinian, you can't pass. So they are forced to go on these long roads for hours in order to get to work that might be available to them them on the Israeli side.
0: Did you get a chance to uh, see any Israeli settlements or visit any of them?
2: yes oh my gosh we met this wonderful woman who had been rescued from ethiopia and she was an ethiopian jew and in the 80s or late 70s
1: no mid-80s
2: mid-80s her um all of them were rescued and brought to israel and um she had like a night or maybe just a few hours to say whether or not she wanted to come with her husband and when they got there if they got to israel And she got off the plane. This is amazing. She said, oh, my gosh, there's white people. I thought all Jews were black. That was her culture. That was her point of view. That's all she knew. And she's lived here for the, raised her four children here with her husband. And she lives in an Israeli settlement.
1: A beautiful settlement, by the way, and a very, very nice home.
2: But a wonderful, wonderful woman and such a story of faith.
1: And we did record that one. I, that That is a very uh, very good story. Now, the, the thing about it is is that she was only... That the Israeli armed forces have, on repeated occasions, uh, entered into various countries and have saved Jews that have been persecuted or have been forced by war or famine to come to Israel. And the Israeli government uh, provides funds uh, to make sure that they not only come back to Israel to build the Israeli population, but they actually uh, support them while they're here, either through the settlements uh, and through work and uh, even learning periods so that they can uh, uh, sort of learn how to best fit into the deciding and, and contribute to it well. And it's not only a one-time affair. The Israeli government continues to encourage people to move here, from wherever uh and they've made substantial growth in their population uh to increase the overall uh well-being of their own companies
0: yeah as long as they're as long as they're jews right Uh, tell me a little bit did you did you hear at all about uh they talked to you about the nakba or the catastrophe of the of the palestinian displacement did you hear that at all
1: well, I've only read about it. I guess. I, and were you talking about 1947? Yeah, 1947,
0: with the, when the uh, when the Palestinians, of course, uh, were yeah, moved not, out.
1: No, the, that was not talked about at all. I mean, I read that in one of the books uh, where they actually forced thousands of people out of villages. Uh, they couldn't use their own cars; they had to walk or use an animal or walk. And it was pretty dramatic. Uh, but that was not. That that was not something that was mentioned, and it's recognized, uh, and it and people might talk about it, but still, uh, that is not that is not what they want to think about. They want to think about the importance of and survival of their own population and of the state of Israel.
0: Did you find Palestinians and Israelis any sense or sign of of them working together, um, or was it pretty well polarized?
1: I think it's polarized. I don't see where the uh, Israeli government is really going to um, make any big changes. I mean, as far as I can see right now, they are continuing to confirm the importance uh, and the place of settlements, you know, in the Palestinian areas and various settlements. They support that, and it will not go away. It will not go away.
2: But it's a tenuous piece. One man said, we make up. Were we peaceful yesterday? Good. Will we be peaceful today? Maybe. And then they go to sleep and wake up again. Was it peaceful yesterday? Yes. Will we be peaceful today? We don't know. So that's how things operate here.
0: Wayne Potter and Pam Brown. Wayne's weekly radio show is Keeping Current. Current with a K. The website is www.keepingcurrent.com. Thanks also to Dr. Richard Elliott Friedman, author of The Exodus, How It Happened, Why It Matters. His website is www.richardelliotfriedman.com. Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have... Something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed every week through the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks to the following radio stations for carrying Progressive Spirit every week. WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee. WEHC, Emory, Virginia. WPVM, Asheville, North Carolina. Kutztown University Radio, Kutztown, Pennsylvania. KCEI, Taos, New Mexico. KACR, Alameda, California, WDRT, Viroqua, Wisconsin, KSOW, Cottage Grove, Oregon, and KZ88, Kabul, Missouri. You can download Progressive Spirit for free on your favorite podcast app. The website is progressivespirit.net. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Schock. Be well.